Thank you, Derek. Good morning, everyone. Let's uh, come to God's word this morning. I'm going to pray before we read the Bible and, uh, and then into the message. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for your word that calls forth not only the world and everything in it, but calls us to call forth the praise and the joy that we have in you. We thank you for this word this morning that you have set before us to teach, instruct, correct, correct, rebuke and train in righteousness. And Father, please, Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to respond uh, according to that word which is set before us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? Blessed are they who maintain justice, who constantly do what is right. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favour to your people. Come to my aid when you save them, that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may share in the joy of your nation and join your inheritance in giving praise. We have sinned even as our fathers did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, From the hand of the enemy, he redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them survived. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise. But they soon forgot what he had done and did not wait for his counsel. In the desert, they gave in to their craving. In the wasteland, they put God to the test. So he gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease upon them. In the camp, they grew envious of Moses and of Aaron, who was consecrated to the Lord. The earth opened up and swallowed Dathan. It buried the company of Abiram. Fire blazed among their followers. A flame consumed the wicked. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glory for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his promise. They grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord. So he swore to them with uplifted hand that he would make them fall in the desert, make their descendants fall among the nations and scatter them throughout the lands. They yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to lifeless gods. They provoked the Lord to anger by their wicked deeds and a plague broke out among them. But Phinehas stood up and intervened and the plague was checked. This was credited to him as righteousness for endless generations to come. By the waters of Meribah they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them, for they rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. 
They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds they prostituted themselves. Therefore the Lord was angry with his people and abhorred his inheritance. He handed them over to the nations and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion and they wasted away in their sin. But he took note of their distress when he heard their cry For their sake he remembered his covenant, and out of his great love he relented. He caused them to be pitied by all who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Last week, we saw how faithful our God is. Do you remember? We looked at Psalm 105, which is the companion piece to our psalm today. And we saw that there's never been a time in history when God hasn't been actively involved in the covenantal care of his people. You see it in Psalm 106 as well, don't you? His intervention, his relenting, his his compassion and kindness for his people. From Abraham to Joseph, from Joseph to Moses, from Egypt to the Promised Land, right down through the ages and even to us today, we see that God has always shown himself to be faithful. How faithful is our God? He is very, very, very faithful. He is faithful to keep all his promises to all his people for all time. But what about us? What about us? How do we measure up in light of God's faithfulness to us? Well, this is where reality bites. Sin renders us incapable of pleasing God in our own strength. Let that sink in for a moment. Sin renders us incapable of pleasing God in our own strength. Read your Bible and you'll see that all the evidence is stacked against us. It's a story of faithful God, fickle people, right? Faithful God, fickle people. That's how it is. That's the story of the church throughout history. Faithful God, fickle people. I'm sorry to say, but we are a fickle people. And Psalm 106 is going to show us just how fickle we are. Like it or not, we are simply not capable of pleasing God in our own strength. We are up and down. We are hot and cold. We make promises, but we do not always keep them. We have short attention spans. We start things, but we don't finish them. We forget the Lord and his goodness to us, and we rebel against him. It's like one of those good news, bad news stories, except this is no joke. The reality is that sin ruins everything. Total depravity is 
an important biblical teaching. It means that every part of our humanity has been ruined by sin. And this from birth. We are born into sin. Our bodies wear out. Our minds often have wrong thoughts. Our emotions can go off track. Our interests, our appetites, our abilities, all ruined by sin. And this doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could possibly be. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as Satan. But it does mean that we can never save ourselves, no matter how hard we try, because we're born into sin. And we need one who comes from outside our circumstance to be the one who rescues us. Today's lesson teaches us that fickle people need a faithful God. Fickle fickle people need a faithful God because total depravity means we must have a total dependency on God's grace in order to be saved. Fickle people need a faithful God. That's really the whole point of Psalm 106. We are in a terrible mess and only God can save us. So what must we do? We must be honest with ourselves and honest with God, trusting that he is faithful and will forgive us our sins if we are willing to confess them and repent of them. He makes a way for us to be reconciled to himself. In fact, he is the one who makes the first move every time. He is the one who rescues the lost. So that's what we need to do. The confession of sin, then, is an act of worship in itself. It's trusting in God's faithfulness, trusting his promise that he is faithful and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness when we turn to him. When you feel the weight of guilt, and, and I'm sure we all feel it, don't we? We know the shame, the sin and shame that is our responsibility. But when you feel that responsibility and guilt being lifted from your shoulders, then the soul rejoices. And it's the majesty of Psalm 106 is that it's, it's actually recounting for us a confession of sin. And there's such a litany of sins that are described here, and yet this psalm transforms the experience of confession so that it, it turns it into a message of light and hope, the honesty of the one who confesses, the integrity and faithfulness of God is able to deal with the brokenness that is part of each one of us. So there it is. I want to look at the opening words of verse 1 just as we get into the passage today. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. His steadfast covenant love for his people endures forever. Our God is very, very, very faithful But we are very, very, very fickle. To prove the point this morning, we're going to retrace our steps from last week, but with a different perspective. Again, there's a call to worship in verses 1 to 5. This time it's more personal because it's a confession and it's a powerful confession, one that we can work through ourselves as we bring our own sins to God. In fact, this is not only a personal confession, but a national confession. It's confessing the sins of the nation of Israel as a whole. I was talking to Swathar just this morning on the seat outside, thinking, when was the last time Australia, as a nation, stopped to have a national confession of sin? 
I think it may have happened somewhere in World War II, perhaps might have been about the last time. And, and everyone earlier, yeah, Derek's shaking his head. It, it, it isn't, wouldn't it be a, a wonderful thing for the churches of Australia to call for a time of national confession of sin, confessing the sins of the nation as a whole? The psalmist is very aware of his own unworthiness before a holy God, and yet his personal humility comes through in a way that's very, very encouraging. Well, that's the call to worship. Then in, again, this big, long, central section, the retelling of Israel's story, again, verse 6 to 39. We're going to focus, though, this time on the sins of the people. And you'll notice this time the, the operative words are we and they. We have sinned, even as our fathers did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. And then throughout the psalm, they forgot, they despised, they grumbled, they provoked, they rebelled. And so on. And then to finish, we're going to come back to that same question we looked at last week. What is God calling to us, calling us to in our lives? Since we are sinners saved by grace, how then should we live? And this is where we come to the cry of the repentant heart in the closing verses of the psalm, where it says, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. This is the cry of the repentant heart looking to the Lord, trusting in his forgiveness and redeeming love. So we're talking today about sin and salvation. And we begin with this call to worship in verses 1 to 5. As we've already seen that verse, praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. You may know this is a well-known and well-loved formula and it's a classic way to begin a psalm. Psalm 107 begins with exactly the same words. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. It's, it's a, one of those formulas that, of prayer that people would have known from their youngest days. I suppose it's a little bit like the Lord's Prayer. We say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we know the words. Well, they say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And it begins the process of prayer and, and, and preparing the heart to worship God. And you can say those words joyfully, you can say them solemnly, you can say them as a believer, a new believer, thankfully. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, he is good, his love endures forever, and I've come to know that love. You can also say it after 50 years of experience, knowingly, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. Perhaps today, though, we should say it tearfully. And with gratitude in our hearts to God for all that he has done for us in Christ. His patience, his enduring love, that he might be the one who saves us from our sins. Also, there's a hunger in these words, a holy hunger. The psalmist yearns for the nation of Israel, which is the Old Testament church, to recommit herself to the Lord, heart, soul, mind and strength. And so he has this passionate prayer in verse 2. Who, who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or, or fully declare his praise? Blessed are those who maintain justice, who constantly do what is right. 
and how few and far between it is to find those who constantly do what is right. The psalmist longs for a revival in the life of the church of his times. He knows the problems only too well. He knows that he and the people with him have not kept faith with the Lord as they should. Sin has entered in. God's name and God's glory have been trampled. And so comes this strong plea in verses 4 and 5. Notice how personal it is. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favour to your people. Come to my aid when you save them, that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may share in the joy of your nation and join your inheritance in giving praise. Let's take a moment to look at this prayer more closely because it is a very precious prayer. First, remember me, O Lord. Remember me, O Lord. This is a deeply covenantal plea. A deeply covenantal plea. You've got to understand, this comes from deep down in the bowels of faith, like that tax collector that Derek mentioned, who didn't dare lift his eyes to heaven, but prayed, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or again, do you remember the thief on the cross? He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into kingdom. There he is, nailed to the cross next to Jesus. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favour to your people. It's saying, Lord, I know that you're loving and I know that you're good, but I also know I'm a sinner. I've broken covenant with you and I know I'm guilty. Lord, be merciful to me. Remember me, O Lord when you show favour to your people. And then look at the next phrase. The NIV in our version has come to my aid when you save them, but I much prefer, oh, visit me with your salvation. It's a much better translation. Oh, visit me with your salvation. Again, this is deeply covenantal language. And Charles Spurgeon says we ought to think of the psalmist lying on his sickbed, too sick to visit the doctor. Ever felt that sick? Oh, so sick. The doctor must visit him. The doctor must visit him. Lord, visit me. Come to me. Come to my aid. Come to me now or I die. Spurgeon says there is no salvation apart from the Lord and he must visit us with it or we shall never obtain it. We are too sick to visit our great physician, and therefore he visits us. I love that. This is grace in action. Oh, visit me with your salvation, that I might live and not die. Finally, the psalmist asks in his prayer for three great blessings that are at the heart of what I would call today the Christian hope. It's the enduring hope of God's people throughout the ages. He prays for three things. First, O Lord, I want to see the good of your chosen ones. Now, our version has enjoy the prosperity. That's a lousy translation. I'm sorry, it's just really poor. Now, I want to see the good of your chosen ones. 
I want to see the church in all her glory. I want to see the church at her best, clothed in your righteousness. I want to see the good of your chosen ones. Second, I want to share in the joy of your nation. That is, I want to be there in person to celebrate the victory of your redeemed people. I want to be part of the celebrations. I want to share in the joy of your nation. And third, I want to glory with your inheritance. I want to glory with you, Lord, and with your people. I want to join with your inheritance in giving you the praise and the glory forever. Three things he prays for. I want to see the good of your chosen ones. I want to share in the joy of your nation. I want to glory with your inheritance. Isn't that wonderful? It just brings it out so much better than, unfortunately, our version of the Bible does here. It's such a strong prayer. This is what the psalmist asks for. He wants to see God's blessing at work. He wants to share in the victory of Christ. He wants to join with God's people in glorifying the Lord forever. It's one of the great prayers of the Bible. Now I ask our psalmist, how is this possible to pray this prayer at this point in time? What audacity to ask for such blessings when just around the corner you know there's this long lamentation and confession of sin starting in verse 6. Isn't it being rather too confident of himself to approach God and ask for these things when he hasn't dealt with the sin yet? How is this possible? Well, it's possible because of the very character of God. The Lord is a God who hates sin, yes, but he loves and hates sinners. He loves and saves sinners. He reaches into the lives that are broken and redeems. And so when we, we humbly ask our God for his forgiveness, when we turn away from sin and turn to him, well, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should turn to him in repentance and live. Now, I know the temptation is to run away. I know the temptation is to think that God hates me and, and my sin can't be forgiven and, and his promises can't hold true for me. Oh, Lord, how many times have I been in this place before? Well, that's a devilish lie. God knows what you need before you ask him. That's not to say that he excuses sin. No, he deals with it. The justice is poured out on Christ so that we can be set free. Because he loves you. You can be honest with him, even about the bad stuff, even about the worst stuff. After all, he created you, and he's God, and he knows everything about you. No secrets from him. It's good to fess up and be honest with the Lord, because when we confess our sins, well, as I said before, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us. God knows what you need before you ask him. And that's why the psalmist can have this wonderful prayer, this personal call for God to remember him, even before the confession of sin begins. This is a living relationship with the living God. So we come now to this confession, to this long middle section, verses 6 to 39. The message is painfully clear. It's blurted out in verse 6, isn't it? We have sinned. 
We have sinned, even as our fathers did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. We've been very naughty. We've been very disobedient. We've sinned in Egypt, verses 7 to 12. We've sinned in the wilderness, in verses 13 to 33. We've sinned even up to the present day, verses 34 to 39. The truth is, we're still sinning now. As Christians, we need to be challenged in this. It's easy to point the finger at those Old Testament saints and say, how did they mess up so badly? But our own hearts are prone to wander too, aren't they? So let's take a look at the sins of our fathers that we might learn from their mistakes and not repeat them by being so stubborn or unbelieving or proud as they were and provoke God's wrath. First, we have sinned in Egypt, verses 7 to 12. Reading verse 7, When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. They gave no thought to your miracles. They didn't consider them in the right way. They they seemingly saw them but didn't take them in, the, the implications of what God had done. And they quickly forgot his kindnesses. So fickle. Yet so fundamentally true to form. God's people are a stiff-necked and stubborn people. We do not deserve the grace we have received. They, Israel, and we with them today, well, it's true, we have a long history of grumbling, complaining and rebelling, of mistreating one another, of dishonouring God. We need to be constantly before the throne of grace, asking for forgiveness, confessing our sins. Take, for example, the behaviour of God's people as described in Exodus 15. In Exodus 15, it's referred to very much in summary in in our psalm today, but you've got this beautiful song of of Moses and Miriam. It's straight after the people have been through the sea and they've, they've experienced the deliverance of God. And it's a song of faith. God has rescued them from their adversaries with these most amazing series of miracles and yet before the end of chapter 15 of Exodus, guess what? They're grumbling again. They haven't even made it to Mount Sinai and they're not happy, not happy, grumbling again. Why? Well, first of all, because they were thirsty. Their throats are parched, their legs are tired, they've walked all day. When they get to Rephidim, they're not happy. There's no water to drink, not for the kids, not for the animals. So at one level, I suppose, it's an understandable complaint because now the kids are crying and the livestock's restless and everyone's feeling tired and grumpy. So they grumble and Moses prays and God gives them water. But in Exodus chapter 17, before very long again, we have the same sort of problem happening. And so this time they quarrel with Moses and they say to him, give us water to drink. As if Moses is God. As if he can just snap his fingers and, wow, fresh water. Here, turn this tap on. Sometimes God's people can be so unreasonable, so demanding. It's something we all need to be careful of, isn't it? 
because it only leads to tears. And what we have here is really evidence of a deeper spiritual problem, as we'll see in a moment. Why do you quarrel with me, said Moses in reply to their grumbling and their quarrelling? Why do you put the Lord to the test? That's the question, isn't it? Why do you put the Lord to the test? This lack of gratitude is a serious sin. It shows you haven't appreciated God's love. Will you only love the Lord if he gives you what you want? Shame on you for being so fickle. But God maintains his own faithfulness. He saves us not because we're good, but because he is faithful. Indeed, the Bible says this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And verse 8 in Psalm 106 says the same thing, reading from verse 8. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, from the hand of the adversary he redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them survived. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise. Actually, this tells us that they were slow to believe what had been promised to them. All these things have to happen and then after that's been through And saved, then they believed his promises. They didn't really believe his promises until after they'd seen them fulfilled. But at least they believed, and at least they did sing. There was that wonderful moment, the song of Moses and Miriam, singing the victory song of the Lord, the redeemed people of God. But notice it was God who saved them, as it says, for his own name's sake. Our God is very, very, very faithful. And his glory he will not give to another. So he rebuked the sea and led them through it. He saved them and he redeemed them. And then at last they did believe. But before you get too excited, look what happens next. Verse 13. (laughs) But they soon forgot what he'd done. Oh, so yesterday. And they did not wait for his counsel. We know best. We got this, Lord. Remember, I had a birthday party many, many years ago. My uncle had one of those little mini bikes. We're all just sort of 10 or or 11 years old. You know, bikes are about sort of really small wheels, saying, oh, okay, we can have a go on the the bike. Well, he'd given the instructions on how to engage the gears and and, and let go and and drive the little bike. Well, one kid, he knew best, got on the bike, and then he started screaming and heading straight for the bushes because he couldn't work out how to use the brakes properly. You know, it's that kind of thing. We know best, Lord, we've got this. And then you realise you haven't. I think we often make that mistake, that presuming with God and not really trusting in him. Saying that we do, but really still trusting in our own wisdom. But they soon forgot what he had done and did not wait for his counsel. Barely had they passed through the waters of the Red Sea, seen those astonishing miracles of deliverance, and yet already they were forgetting God, his faithfulness, his power, his majesty. We have sinned in Egypt, yes, 
our fathers and us with them, and we sinned in the wilderness too, in verses 13 to 33. And briefly, uh, these verses tell us about six specific sins that people committed during their time in the wilderness. Namely, uh, they're on the screen for you, craving, verses 14 and 15. So in the desert, they gave in to their craving. In the wilderness, God put them to the test. This is when the people craved for meat and they grumbled against God and he graciously gave them quail, but there was also uh, a judgment of God that came with that. You can read about that in the book, uh, where is it, of Exodus 16. That's right. Then after craving, there's envying. Verses 16 to 18, because some people wanted, as it were, equity in the workplace. They um, had their human resources department come around and say, well, why does Moses and Aaron have uh, this uh, seniority position? Uh, We need equality and equity in the workplace. So they envied Moses and Aaron and tried to take over their roles. Well, it didn't end well for the rebels. Verse 17, the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan. It buried the the company of Abiram. Fire blazed among their followers. A flame consumed the wicked. So there's craving and there's envying and there's idolatry in verses 19 to 23, specifically when they made the golden calf and they exchanged the glory of the living God, the image of a bull which eats grass. And there's unbelief in God's promises as evidenced by their continual grumbling in verses 24 to 27. It's a mark of uh, their unbelief in the Lord. And it flows over into apostasy through the worship of false gods, particularly the Baal of Peor in verses 28 to 31. And there's outright rebellion against the Holy Spirit too in verses 32 and 33. And even Moses at that time fell into sin through his frustration with the people. He allowed rash words to pass from his lips, words that dishonoured God. For that he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land, but only see it from a distance. Are these really the people of God? You could be forgiven for wondering. And yet there are also glimpses of greatness and God's providence at every point along the way. You'll notice, for example, verse 23, it's not on the screen, but you'll see that Moses is active uh, in standing in the breach, as it were, after this, after the golden calf incident. And, And Moses stands in the breach as the Lord is ready to eliminate Israel and start again with Moses. He says, no, if you, if you destroy them, then, then, then I want to die. And, and Moses stands in the breach, verse 23. So he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. So there you see the intervention of a mediator, foreshadowing of Christ, And what about this extraordinary intervention of Phineas as well? This is after the the Baal of Peor incident. And it says something much like what Abraham is described as having as well. Faith that is credited to him as righteousness. They provoked the Lord to anger by their wicked deeds and a plague broke out among them. Verse 30, but Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was checked. This was credited to him as righteousness for endless generations to come. 
God has a way of preserving a faithful remnant. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel and against God's church. But you have to say in general, the history of the church on earth is littered with many similar examples of the kind of misdeeds we see listed in this passage. The abuse of power, financial greed, sexual sin, favoritism, pride, nepotism, double standards, compromise, sometimes outright denial of biblical truth, proclaimed from pulpits in supposed churches, some even denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What's going on in churches like that? Is that not a complete apostasy from the truth? And yet God preserves a faithful remnant to himself. Well, that brings me to the final and most confronting part of this journey of, of, of recounting of sin in verses 34 to 39. For, in effect, we've continued to sin right up to the present day. Even after they entered the promised land, the problems of sin continued in the life of God's people, in Egypt, in the wilderness, in the promised land, up to the present day, including awful sins like child sacrifice. Did you notice that? as we read through the passage, child sacrifice. Here we are having kids' talks in the morning and child sacrifice after lunch. Isn't it? It's almost unthinkable. And yet it happened in the community of God's Old Testament people. Oh, Lord, we have sinned even up to the present day. Let me read to you again from verse 34 just so that it sinks in how evil how wicked the people had become. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds, they prostituted themselves. I mean, I have to say, by the way, I don't know of any other faith except the faith of the living God that is so honest about the sins of her people. There is no hiding from the facts that are set before us. How did it happen? How did they get to this? Well, look at verse 35. They mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. And they began worshipping the gods of the nations. They let the local culture into the life of the church, including even the practice of child sacrifice. And if you think it couldn't happen to us, think again. Because it's happening today. The number of abortions in New South Wales is around 380 a week. That's around 20,000 annually, just in New South Wales. It's around 100,000 child sacrifices every year in Australia. The most dangerous place to live in Australia is inside a mother's womb. There is no higher death rate than that which is caused by abortion. 
the gods of the Canaanites would be pleased. For we are a nation of child killers. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance. I'm sure that most people don't start out as supporters of child sacrifice or pornography or pedophilia. But evil prospers when good people do nothing. You may have heard the new language around pedophilia. It's to um, normalise it. The new language is minor attracted person or MAP. A minor attracted person. Nothing wrong with that, is there? Of course there is. So my last point today is called the cry of the repentant heart. This is 40 to 48. Who can save a wretch like me? You know, in a strange way, it's comforting to know that it's actually part of God's judgment to hand us over to the very things that will destroy us unless we repent. God knows what he's doing. So verse 40, therefore the Lord was angry with his people and abhorred his inheritance. He handed them over to the nations and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion and they wasted away in their sin. Friends, there are no secrets from God. He already knows the very worst about you. Abortion is so common in our nation today. I'm sure that there are people in this church who either had an abortion or know someone who's had an abortion. And I want to say to you this morning that the grace of God is sufficient for you if you are able to come to him trusting that he already knows and that Jesus died to wipe away the penalty And he can redeem you. He knows about your greed. He knows about your lustful thoughts. He knows about your lies. He knows about your unforgiveness and your secret jealousy and your grumbling and your prayerless unbelief. Clear as day. He knows it all. There's no hiding from God. And that's why this prayer of confession is so powerful and so necessary. The psalmist is teaching us how to pray a prayer of confession, warts and all, holding nothing back. Remember, those who seek God's love will find it. But those who reject God's love will get none from Satan. <laughs> He's whispering in your ear, but he'll, he hates you. So if you need to turn back to God today, then do it. Confess your sins to God and repent of them. Admit the truth, plead for mercy, because his mercy is available to you now. Listen to this from verse 44. They have wonderful word, but. But he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and out of his great love 
he relented. We're almost finished for today, but in conclusion, how then should we live as God's people today? First of all, remember that we're all sinners saved by grace. So stay close to the Lord and don't be afraid to confess your sins to God. Confess your sins and ask God to help you to repent, for you'll need his help to do even that. Remember the man who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, yet help me in my unbelief. Remember, we're all sinners. Heaven is a place of the forgiven. Secondly, pray for one another. I mean, prayer is one of our best weapons against sin and Satan. So be prayerful. Pray for one another. Pray for your own personal protection. Pray for strength. Pray for victory over sin. Pray the Lord's Prayer, asking the Lord to deliver us from evil as he has promised to do. Don't hide the truth. I mean, secrecy is one of Satan's biggest traps. Find an accountability partner. Be honest with God. Don't hide the truth. Sin is like a cockroach. It doesn't willingly come into the light. You've got to shine the light in and around the cupboard and underneath. Bring God's word to bear. And keep putting sin to death in your own life. Flee from sin. Strive to be holy. Start and end each day with the Lord in his word and in prayer. Be wise as you live in the world. Avoid obvious temptations and behaviours that may leave you vulnerable. Fickle people need a faithful God. The good news, our God is very, very, very faithful. So let's this morning confess our sins to God and finish today by joining with the psalmist in saying the closing words of our psalm together. It's on the screen, starting from verse 47. Let's say it together. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, we're going to sing our response song, Where Else Have We To Go? Thank you, music team.